Okay, I think we're off and running finally. April 8, 2018, lecture discussion number 18 on the book of Joel. And last Sunday was the feast day of first fruits. It actually was the feast day of first fruits, and, and I thought it best to continue in Joel because of that, somewhat at least. And because Joel chapters 2 and 3 are centered around the third phase of the resurrection of Christ, it's important to know that Christ has his resurrection divided into thirds. It's not surprising, is it? He likes three. Three is a godly number. It is the number of the triune Godhead. So I would expect that. He, he of course, was entombed for three days and three nights. Some people do not believe that. Uh, but that is clearly the case. It is the sign of Jonah. It is three 24-hour periods. God can count. But Joel 2 and 3, where we are, is centered around the third phase or the third station of the resurrection of Christ, which is the delivery of the kingdom, which immediately you have to ask questions. Why is his resurrection in these three uh, components or in these three partitions? What is the purpose of that? Why are they in this order? What is he doing? Hopefully you remember from last week, if you were here, which was lecture number 17, it was a truncated lecture because of the buffet, that I listed the three stations. And again, here they are. The first station is all resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. That's what he says. There are no resurrections that can occur unless he himself is resurrected by himself. He is the first fruits, and that is the guarantees of the resurrection of the believing of the saints. Those who believe in him have a guarantee that they will be resurrected. And then the last of the three is that he delivers the kingdom to the God all in all. The third facet is the delivery of the kingdom to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15.24. Let me put that up there for the Internet. So, he delivers to the God the Father. In essence, God then returns as king, Christ returns as king, to reign and to commit, consign, if you will, the kingdom, give back the kingdom to the triune Godhead. It specifically says God the Father. So they are doing, how do I put this? We're going to try to describe the triune nature of God. Can I do it? No. But there it is in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh my goodness, more buffet is coming. Can never have enough buffets. A dog has followed you into the building, young lady. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was intentional. The reason that I'm concerned about dogs when we have a good buffet is obvious reasons, right? I don't want to share with the dogs. You've got to be kidding. They're, they're, one, they don't have to listen to me. They'll just go for the chicken right off the bat. There's some problems here. Where was I as a professional? <laughs> yeah, who knows? You have to follow it on the Internet. God himself returns as king. Christ is God. And he commits, consigns the kingdom. He gives back the kingdom to the Father, who is God. 
that God may be all in all, it says. That is a triune reference. 1 Corinthians 15.28 is a triune Godhead reference. And so when you read those in the Bible, you have to stop and be wise. It's an infinite declaration. It is saying God, infinite God and infinite God and infinite God are involved in this giving of the kingdom, the delivery of the kingdom. So keep that in mind when you approach it and maintain the proper perspective. This is God describing himself. Be respectful. Have no simple conclusions. Do not make an attempt to dissect the triune Godhead into three pieces. It is impossible to do it. It is heresy to do it. It is common that it is done in the church today who is almost routinely dissected, excommunicated from the triune Godhead, if you will. Christ is almost always subordinated. And that is heresy. It's blasphemy. It's wickedness. Why does the church do it? Because they are unable to comprehend the infinity of God, or even willing to try. And so they make this horrifying error constantly. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, actually warns against this at 15.27 of Corinthians. Let me read it. So there it is. While, you're, while people are doing it, they're being warned not to do it. It's fantastic. This is what it says. For he, God, has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him... It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That is God saying, don't dissect us. For he has put all things under him. It is evident, it is obvious that he who puts all things under him is not under him. Does that make sense? That's the triune Godhead there. Why is it obvious that he is accepted from being under himself? It's a math problem. It's infinity and infinity. All persons are infinite in the Godhead. That is where you begin mathematically. It's the big duh. Can I put infinity underneath infinity? So gather up infinity, you can't. But go with the imagination here, the thought experiment. You have gathered infinity. Can you put it underneath infinity? What is larger, infinity or infinity? Can I put something that is infinite under anything? Will it fit? The point is, yea, a point. Recognize the scope of the discussion. That's why that, dis- uh, not, that's why that warning is in Corinthians. Trying to separate the triunity of God will result in foolishness, as will all efforts to make Christ finite. But yet we constantly confront the church reducing Christ to a finite being. It is not just common, it is probably overwhelming now. I take you to Da Vinci's uh, statue of Mary holding Christ. Mary is disproportionately larger than Christ. How is that possible? Christ is what? Infinite God. 
But yet Mary is considered to be equal to him. How is that possible? That would make her infinite God. So that's what the church does routinely because humanity, the congregations demand it. Why the congregations, the Christians of this time, want a finite uh, Christ is really inexplicable outside of the supernatural aspect of it. So let me ask it a different way. Can infinity be reduced to non-infinity? Can I take infinity and shrink it? Is it possible for infinity to become finite? Submit your essays after the lecture test on Friday. So that's where we were uh, last week um, on First Fruit Sunday. Some will call it Easter. As you know, that is not correct. So that's where we kind of sort of left off. The three aspects of the resurrection of Christ. First Fruits... Um, is the feast day that he chooses. This will incorporate the campaign of Armageddon because the campaign of Armageddon is the delivery of the kingdom to the Godhead, to God the Father. Uh, All of this is based on lunar cycles. And, of course, if I get into lunar calendars, I'm into solar calendars, which is heliocentricity. Uh, God's people, Christ, those who Christ has saved will not be ashamed of what they say about him because he actually is going to do all of these things. He guarantees that you will be resurrected. That's his guarantee. And you will not be ashamed of that guarantee. That's there on the table with it. And all the implications that accompany those few items that I just mentioned. That's where we left off. Plus everything that remains from the previous 17 weeks. That's what we're doing today. Because we're on lecture number 18 of the Joel study. And that's a lot. And I know that. But I expect to completely, absolutely resolve every issue to its fullest. There's maybe three, four hundred of them. Whatever the number is. Each and every single one of them, I'm going to resolve them soon. Eventually, like I always do. And so far soon and eventually have been revealed to be almost 25 years. So it can't be long now. Look at how old I am. I can't last that much longer. But you knew all of that. Anyway, part of the problem is that I don't resolve these things because I'm distracted easily. I'm unfocused. I chase rabbits and squirrels and I can't stop myself. I need interventions. I really do. I'll give you the latest example. You know this about me. I watch these TV shows. Why do I do it? I don't really know, but I do. And these TV shows that I watch, they present scenarios addressing the principles, the domain that is time itself. And as soon as that happens, boom, I'm hooked. I'm the fish. It's the shiny object. There's nothing I can do to stop myself. And that's what I do because I recognize what this means. And that's an extraordinary thing. It's part of my education for many years back when I was that picture, actually, as at that time I was working for the Alaska Railroad. As the, uh, so I was taking, they were sending me to classes in physics and electronic systems. I took computer systems. 
I really did. It's hard to imagine. But first microprocessor that I had to completely um, uh, diagram out was the, uh, the uh, I believe, 8080. Does that sound right? Is anybody that old? I had to draw out all the JFET uh, field effect transistors, all the operational amplifiers, all the... Uh, all the logic systems in a 8080 microprocessor. I, it, was, it was a drawing. I drew it. It was a big drawing, but it was a small computer. <laughs> in a sense, the microprocessor was small. Today, they're unimaginable. But anyway, that's that was me in that picture. That's what I did at that time. And at that time, I recognized how critical time was to everything. Physicists refer to time as an arrow. They say there is an arrow to time. In other words, it is one directional, singular direction. That fascinated me. So whenever the entertainment media intend, uh, insists on discussing time, there I am. I want to see what they say again. I'm never satisfied. The entertainment media insists that time can be manipulated. It can be traversed. It can be traversed left. In other words, it can be left and re-entered at will. It is apparently a common theme. There are many, many such of these programs. And the audiences must find them appealing. There's got to be an economic component after all. And because I'm enthralled by the origin and existence, the nature of time itself, I again succumb to the Frisbee. It's a moral failing, I know. Nothing I can do about it. I know the show is going to be thoughtless. Nonetheless, I torment myself because I'm hoping one time somebody will do something that is magnificent because time is magnificent. And it never happens. It's a Lucy Charlie Brown football circumstance. I watch and I wait. I sit through the whole thing, every section of it. And usually they're five or six episodes long. I have to watch them all, hoping they're going to figure out that they're idiots. Never happens. I think that this one time Charlie Brown will kick the football. Right? That's what I'm doing. And Charlie Brown never will kick the football. Never kicks the football and will never kick the football. Lucy will always pull the football away. Charlie Brown, go down, splat. Fall down, go splat. And it can be nothing else. There's nothing else that can happen. No other possibility will ever occur. And therefore, Lucy Charlie is the perfect metaphor for these time traveler motifs that you see, whether movies or television shows. There's a half a dozen television shows now that are all time traverse or time based systems. All of, they're all over the place doing all kinds of things. And once you begin, once you put forth the premise that a means is possible through which one can withdraw, they can exit the current time and intrude into a time that is, that is distant, irrespective of the distance, in either direction. So they're not going to adhere to an arrow of time. They're going to make time uh, going in both directions. Therefore, time, if time is infinite in this direction, is time infinite? What is bigger, time or infinity? 
Those of you who think that time is, is bigger than infinity, move over into this section. Of, those of you who think infinity is bigger than time. What's that? <laughs> this section is closer to the buffet. Yeah. And that tells you what my position is right there. <laughs> Once you begin with this premise that it's possible to exit from time and intrude into another time, again, the distance is not a factor, and either is the direction, then the football cannot be kicked, and it is fall down, go boom. And that is the premise of every one of these shows. One little thing here. Notice that no one travels to before time in these shows. Why not? I would think that would be the ultimate time travel, wouldn't you? We would travel to before time. What is before time? Well, you could give an answers. That's not right. People will copy your paper, and then what will we have to do? <laughs> the problems are insurmountable when you begin with this premise that you can manipulate time. But because I'm incurably weak, I waste time hoping for something cogent, which is a violation of Chronister's law of capacity. If the writer possessed the capacity to discuss the principles of time with cogency, then he or she would not have written what they wrote. So again, it's hopeless. Lucy football, law of capacity. Anyway, with all of the aforementioned there as a precursor foundation, keep that in mind. A couple of questions for my good friends in Hollywood of which I have no friends in Hollywood, but I like to think that somebody likes me somewhere. So far, I have no evidence of that. Is there a distinction between the observation of time and the navigation of time? What am I saying? By this I mean, if I were to leave my current time and reappear in a time period of significant extent, okay, way out there, which is always the hypothesis of these programs, as I said. Where was I in the interval? How much time did it take me to travel through time, is what I'm asking. And is it instantaneous? If I am instantaneous, have I exceeded the speed of light? How much time does it take for me to travel through time? Could I remain in the interval? Where was I when I'm in the interval? Let's assume that I am taking time to go through time. There's an interval there of time. Anybody following this? You should look at yourselves. It's fantastic. I should do this every week. <laughs> can I remain in that interval? And if I am in that interval, where am I? What can I see? Is there a difference between the observation of time and the navigation of time? Now, let's ask this. Can I, me, you, can I observe time from a frame of reference that is not time? And what is not time? Back to your answer. Move to here. Is it possible for me to observe time from a frame of reference that is not time? If you decide that I can... How much time can I see at once? 
I'm not in time now. I'm traveling. And I've stopped in the interval to have something to eat, which I have reached into time and taken. So if somehow Kentucky Fried Chicken disappears and no one knows where it went, it probably is me as I'm navigating time and I'm in the interval and I stole it. And now I'm eating it. How long can I stay outside of time and, and, and how much time can I observe while I'm outside of time? Again, how fast do I have to travel to stay ahead of time? What's that? Time's up? <laughs> Is that a phone call? Is that someone from the future trying to call me? Let's do something else then. Is time a created thing? And some insist that it is not. And others object. They say, yes, time has an origin. If time has an origin, then how did it originate? The people who say that time is created have prevailed in this discussion. I should just throw that out there for you. If time is deemed to be a created entity, do you have a book anywhere near you that says time is a created entity? Oh, yes, you do. That's how it starts. It starts out by saying, let me read it to you. I'll read it right here. It's amazing. Whoever wrote this really understood time, which makes me wonder how he knew about time. Oh, I have to find it now. I've got to get through all that precursor information here. My hands now, is an old, I'm aging, can't do this. Ah, in the beginning, God created time. Or not. But it definitely says he created time. Beginning is a time-based uh, uh, statement. If time is deemed to be a created entity, then an absolute observer is implied by that. In other words... Somebody has to create it, which means he has the absolute authority to observe all of it. That implication can't be denied. So from where is time observed? If it's being observed, creation requires perception. Reality requires perception. It has to be perceived to be real. Uh, that's basic uh, philosophical theology. Reality implies perception. Who can observe time? And from where can it be observed? Now, continuing along this line, granting the proposed, if I were to travel through time to the future, our past, why don't we ever have shows that have me with a digital camera? I would take my digital camera with me. These shows allow you to travel through time with your clothes, I'm just going to put a digital camera in the pocket. And obviously, as I'm traveling through time, if I went through vast amounts of time, I'm unaffected by that, right? I enter as I was. That's how they do it. So I have a camera now. Aha. Could I record the future or the past with my camera? Why don't, why don't anybody th they need to hire me. Because I would be, I'd have every time traveler loaded down with video equipment, wouldn't I? See, I'd have all that video equipment, and upon re-entry, 
into my current time, because I come back to my current time, I have a digital camera. Can I play the video to you? Of course I can. It'd be a testimony of my ability to manipulate time. Why doesn't anyone who goes through time at will ever film it? I want to know. Somebody knows that's, a, that's a, uh, an idea that causes problems with the, with the uh, scenario or with the show. Why doesn't anybody bring back pictures, evidence that they traveled through time? Here's me and Napoleon. And Napoleon. Oh, look, Wellington. How come that never happens on these shows? Oh, yes. You know, what do they call that? A photo bomb. I have me, Napoleon, and Wellington in the background. And re-entering to my current time, that's a problem. As you know, that's the multi-me problem, as I did a couple of weeks ago. i got to take care to come back after I left. If I come back before I left, then how many me's do I have now? i got at least two. I've, I told you a while back I could get up to thousands of me's. E- real easy. I could just take me with me, and we would go back and find me, and I'd have three. I could do that forever. How come that's never in the show? An army of Steve's traveling through time together, doing all kinds of cool things and taking pictures to prove that we're all there. How come none of that never shows up in Hollywood? And I'm making fun of them because it's fun for me to make fun of them. But they actually did this. They actually did, in a manner of speaking. They tried it. They had a future person who came backwards into time to meet his grandparents. And he brought his grandfather's knife with him. Now, that's hilarious. Because his grandfather also had the knife. So I had two knives that were the same knife. Let me rephrase that. A future person comes backwards into time with a knife that existed 70 years earlier, and it's the same knife And it's simultaneously existing. So I have two knives, but they're the same knife, and they're held by two persons. So one person has the knife, the other person has the knife. They're showing each other that they have the same knife. Can that happen? This is the Bernard Williams, Richard Swinburne, mad scientist, brain hemisphere question, isn't it? If I take one half of your brain out and put it into another human's body, where did you go? Are you still in your body or are you in the other person's body? Who, which body is you? Which knife is the knife is what I'm asking here. It is ultimately boils to the same thing. Is this a superposed or a superposition state? I'm going to help you with that, maybe. I have one knife and it's being observed into two states. And those of you who have gone through this with me, because physics is what we do here, I have one knife, it's observed into two positions, and it is not reduced by the observation. There's your physics issue right off the bat. Observation, interferometry, the reduction of superposition states or superposed states. When I observe something, I reduce it to its proper state. And observation is key in these time discussions, which is why I keep asking, can somebody observe all of time? What book says that somebody created time and observes time all the time? What book says that? This one. Find me another book that says that. 
Whoever wrote that understood time in a way that we hadn't even imagined. No one even knew what this book says until recently. No one understood superposition. No one had interferometry. No one understood entanglement. No one understood the, the, the implications of time being created. And I could go on in this subject. I know you all love it. But it becomes really important. I hope you will get that at some point. It's my dream. Call it fantasy. I give up. Certain characters in these movies or TV shows are able to interact with themselves in the future or past. Think about that. That's the two knives, isn't it? And when they interact with themselves, so I have the same person in two, in two places at the same time being observed by each other and not reduced. Anyway, go ahead with the, with the hypothesis. A guy goes into time and finds himself and talks to himself, or a woman does in the case that's most recent. And then that person convinces, uh, when they have that experience, both persons who are the same person, hope you're following that, but how could you follow that? It's incredibly, what's that word? Stupid, but try anyway. Let's try again. One person meets himself in the future or the past and then realizes that he has no free will. Did you follow that? Because that's what happens. If I meet myself in the future, then determinancy has been established. Do you understand what I mean? In other words, indeterminacy has been negated by his or hers meeting of herself or his self. Because you see, if I meet myself one year into the future, what do I now know about myself? I am alive one year in the future. So that's determinancy. What can I now do? Oh, I, do I have to eat? I'm going to be alive one year in the future. How about I jump out of an airplane, no parachute, and hit the ground? Am I dead? I am alive one year in the future, and I know it. You see what I've done? I've established determinancy. Is determinancy established? Do the physicists say that we have determinancy? That's the Einstein position. That's EPR. Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. That has been destroyed by Heisenberg, Goodell, John Bell. We do not have determinancy. We have indeterminancy. Time travel requires determinancy. And it is not true. So I could take up skydiving. I, I have demonstrated that I exist 365 in the future, right? I, I've witnessed that, so no parachute. Can I defy gravity now? Is my life in the future inviolable? Again, Heisenberg, Goodell. That's why the uncertainty or the indeterminacy principle of quantum physics is important for Christians to know. That is why the incompleteness theorem of Goodell in mathematics is important for Christians to know. If you know that, then you are not fooled by these processes that are put in front of you by silly people. Indeterminacy reigns in the physical reality. Free will, though limited, has a place. It is linked to accountability in Scripture. It is evident in Scripture. The Bible does not say that things are indeterminate. They say that the observer observes it. 
You'll find scripture and people that will say otherwise. But observation, omniscience, is not causation. Knowing isn't causing. It's a long discussion, and it's important that you begin to consider it. So I repeat the question, from where is time observed and who is observing it? And what did John the Apostle see in the book of Revelation, which is Joel 2 and 3, right? What did Joel see? This is what Paul says, I saw the beast rising up. Thousands of years in the future to him. Two thousand to be close. Oh, it's almost now. The beast which I saw, I saw another beast. The book of Revelation is replete with John describing what he saw. How did he see it? Joel saw. He saw Revelation 9. How did Joel and John, just to take two, how did they see these things? Revelation 10, John saw another mighty angel, heard him, spoke to him. How did that happen? How did John do that? Where was he? Obviously, John, Joel, Daniel, all of the prophets were given access to the future somehow. Notice the direction. Notice the direction when the Bible talks about time. If, some, if a prophet sees the future, he never sees the past. Why not? The Bible is saying that time is directional, which would make sense if it was created. One more evidence that God created it. He demonstrates that all throughout his book. Therefore, the final question on this topic for today. Wow, I did it really fast, too. That's cool. Four people are still awake. It's fantastic. I can't believe it. That's a new record. You, young man, are the youngest who have ever lasted this long. That's uh, You should be able to get a piece of chicken first. You've done that a couple weeks in a row. It's amazing. It's absolutely astonishing. I wish I was you at 13. This could be your future. Run for your life. <laughs> Grab him now before the, the authorities get him. But I'm, I'm serious. I have watched you now for three or a couple of weeks going, my goodness. You are hearing Goodell incompleteness theorem. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? No, good. That would scare me if you did. If you started explaining it to me, I'd sit down and you'd take over. You'll go through what school do you go to, young man? You're homeschool. Okay. You have a chance to study this, but you're not going to find it in the school system. That's a fact. It's up to the church to do this, and the church won't do it. So our kids come back from colleges in body bags. That's a metaphor, but that's what's happening to them. They can't defend their faith. They don't know that their faith is overwhelmingly powerful. We're sending out idiots. And they're getting destroyed. Lambs to slaughter. Pearls to swine. Final question on this topic for today. How is the witnessing by John of the end, at the end of the tribulation? He is hearing and seeing the end of the tribulation 2,000 years in the future. How is that not incompatible with the free will of humanity and animals? And if you don't think animals have free will, you have not met my dogs. We are not automatons. We are not robots. The Bible is absolutely, totally clear on that. God's omniscience, God's authority over time is not in conflict with our free will existence. Explain that. 
So turn in your essays at the end of the class period. You've got 30 minutes to work on a test on Friday. Here we go. Extra credit for those who prove that Jesus Christ's creation of time results in our existence. That's something that time does. Time proves that we exist. And the angelic host exists. Time proves we cannot be extinguished. Our existence is dependent upon his existence and he cannot be extinguished. Time is this mysterious, powerful truth. It's something I brought up a while back. We survive physical death and time proves this. You know, how is this so for those who need more proof? As you know, for those who will never believe no proof is possible. You'll never prove something to somebody who has made up their mind. Free will that they will not believe it no matter what. And those who will always believe no proof is necessary. But I want you to have the proof. So that you can defend your children. How is this so? Why is it so? Prophecy is at the core of Scripture. That's time. So time is at the core of Scripture. You see time actually supporting all of Scripture. And, and I'll try to prove that to you later. Prophecies are proving something to us about Jesus Christ. What is it that they are proving? What will they prove? And if you, ref, if you prefer, why did he give us the prophecies in the first place? He didn't have to, but he did. He gave them through humanity, too. Ultimately, this leads to the defining question, which I tend to frame with the inverse. Consider if there was no time. You're all used to time. I'm going to take it away from you. There's now no time. What's it like there? The creation of time is one of the foundations of the creation. Space, energy, matter, time, gravity. What if there wasn't time? What's that like? He created it for a reason. He put it in place. It's a foundation. It proves something to you. The institution of time is intentional. Duh. God is saying incredible things with his creation of time. Why did God begin time? Genesis 1.1. So ask that. And all of that gets us back to first fruits. I could have done this on Easter Sunday, first fruits. Then none of you would have come back. As it is, only half of you came back. That's not bad. Christ says of himself, I am the first fruits. Remember that from 1 Corinthians 15 last week? I am the first fruits. Part of first fruits is this delivery of the kingdom. I am the first fruits. He also says that he is the light that makes life. He is the light of life. He's the Passover lamb. He's the unleavened bread. He's the manna. He's the good shepherd, Zechariah 11. He's the door, he's the true vine, he's the way, he's the truth. That's just to name a few. But he is defined as the firstfruits of all of the seven feast days. Firstfruits is the one that says he's that one. He's in all of them, but but he's called the firstfruits. And anytime you're talking about firstfruits, 
First fruits is resurrection. That's the one he resurrected himself on. He is the first fruits of resurrection. First fruits is foremost among scripture with respect to resurrection. So in other words, when I'm talking about first fruits, I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First fruits is the feast day of first fruits. That's the third of the seven feast days of the Lord. He has selected it. He has set it aside as the time at which he will resurrect himself. First fruits is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can't say that often enough. How is it then? The resurrection. Because it's waving a bunch of sheaves, barley. It's a feast day. Hardly anything there. It doesn't seem like we're not. There's no lamb. There's no goat. How is it the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why has God done it this way? Why did God resurrect himself? Why did he resurrect himself on this day? What is the meaning of the symbol that is first fruits? What is this delivery of the kingdom? Why does this guarantee? Why are all resurrections dependent on his resurrections? Why does first fruits have these three components? Because it does. To repeat them again, all resurrections are dependent on the resurrection of Christ. Listen to how I said that. All resurrections of his believer, of the believers to have everlasting life are guaranteed, contractually made certain by his resurrection. That's what first fruits does. And the kingdom is delivered, given back to God the Father, the creator of the kingdom. Returned to its rightful owner. So one of the things that Christ does... One of the things that First Fruits tells us is that Christ will come and take the kingdom back and give it to his rightful owner. It'll be returned. You see that demonstrated in Matthew 24, 14 through 29. The vineyard owner. Matthew 21, 33, the landowner. Mark 12, 1 through 12. Christ says this, there is a certain landowner who owns the land. And the owner of the land will come and look at his vineyard, Matthew 21, 40 through 41. What will he do when he comes? He will destroy those who have filled the land with wickedness. So, there's your parables. He's going to come in the wickedness and deliver the land back to himself. Actually, to God the Father, but they are the same. There's sameness there. And that is the third station of the feast day of first fruits, and it has something to do with his resurrection. He has to be resurrected in order to deliver the kingdom. Why does he even have to be resurrected? Why did he have to die? What's all that about? He's God. Why does he have to go through this? Because he does, he's omniscient. To put it, put it into a cause and effect, His resurrection concludes with his giving the land, the kingdom, back to the landowner. So his resurrection, again, has three stations. He's going through all three stations. He's done these two already. All he has left to do is this one. Why does he do them in that order? Why does he have three of them? Why is this one the third one? What does the delivery of the kingdom have to do with him being resurrected? They are impossible to separate. His resurrection concludes with him giving the land. It's not concluded yet. He still has to give the land back. 
He has to take the land, destroy the wicked, and give the kingdom back to the landowner because he is the resurrection. The one who is resurrected is the one who delivers the kingdom. Does that make sense? I hope it does. But why? There's an obvious attachment to his being the resurrection and the returning landowner king. The returning landowner is the one who is resurrected. So therefore, you can only return the kingdom if you're the one who is resurrected. So what is the connection between his resurrection and his ownership and his delivering of the kingdom? doesn't seem, does it, that this should be part of the resurrection? You could see how this one then. You can say, okay, all resurrections, he resurrected, so therefore everybody's got to, can now be resurrected. And it's a guarantee, it's a contract, so, but then I got this thing. This is critical. What's it about? The returning land loan, or, I can barely say it, the returning Landowner is the one who is the resurrection. You cannot be the landowner who delivers the kingdom unless you're this guy. What is the connection then, again, to repeat it, between his resurrection and this delivery and his ownership, if you wish to complete them? 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19 is definitive. If Christ is not the first fruits, the resurrection, then our faith is futile, it is empty, it is worthless, it's meaningless, it's impossible. That's what it says. Your faith is absolutely, totally reliant on his resurrection. And his resurrection means that he can deliver the kingdom. And impossible, of all those words I gave you, futile, empty, worthless, meaningless, impossible. Impossible is the best in my view. Without his resurrection, all other resurrections are impossible. Why? Did he resurrect people before he was resurrected? Has there been people who were resurrected before he was resurrected in time? Those resurrections are impossible unless he is resurrected. So what's that make him? Time doesn't seem to have an issue with this. So well, who is he? He has to be the observer of time, doesn't he? For this to be true. Because resurrections are not time dependent on him. His resurrections, his resurrection, resurrection makes all resurrections possible. That's obviously true. But again, why is it true? Let me just take that on for a second. There is no resurrection that is like his resurrection. His resurrection is absolutely alone, singular, unique. Just one facet of it. He resurrected himself. He said, destroy the body, I will raise it up. Three days. Three nights. If If his resurrection is singular, alone then I would suspect that his death would also be absolutely singular, alone, unique. That's clearly the case, and he says so. Nothing can cause his death. He He cannot be killed. He has to give up his own life. 
He's infinite creator God. How powerful is he? Who's powerful enough to kill him? Nothing can take his life from him. And he says so. And that is why he must give it up. And that's just the starting point. Let me ask you this. How much does he weigh? You've heard me say that a lot. How much does infinity weigh? What's, what's required to lift up infinity? What is required to resurrect him? How much power does it take to resurrect him? What is required to resurrect us? They fit together because they're tied together. One guarantees the other. If he can be resurrected by the power that is resurrecting him, how about you? What's it take to resurrect you compared to what it takes to resurrect him? What is, what is part of resurrecting him that you don't have to worry about? I gave it away. He has to do something in order for you to be resurrected. What does he have to do? I have to put something to him, if you will. That's the starting point to rest us through that. I'll go ahead and give it to you. I wrote it right here. Can you read that? Sin must be forgiven. What does that take? He even says so. He says to you, what is more amazing, the forgiveness of sin or the resurrecting of the dead or the healing? What takes more power? How much power does it take to forgive sin? Revelation 1, 17 and 18. We'll get to it in a minute. It's called by Henry Morris, the mountain peak of Scripture. I think he's absolutely right. I stole that from him. I give him attribution because I think he did it all by himself, which no one does, right? Now, let me read it to you. This is what Christ says to John. John sees Christ. And when I saw him, John writes, through the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit through John, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Why not the left hand? Is he right-handed? Are right-handed people better than left-handed people? Obviously, that's true. I mean, doctrinally, there can be no dispute about that. Is it possible for a left-handed person to be saved? I'm not sure. Who can tell? Fortunately, I'm blessed by God and I'm right-handed. And if I wasn't, I would call myself right-handed. What does it say? Some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed, and I'm amphibian. I can use either hand is the joke. I'll get mail on that. They'll say, don't you know what the real word is? And I'll pretend that I do know it, but I'm not giving it to you. So I'll get more mail because I love that mail. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Let me repeat it in case I left something out. And when I saw him, John speaking, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So what is he saying about time there? He is the first and he is the last. Which is bigger, Christ or time? What did he just tell you? He told you he was bigger. He's infinite. Infinite. He is, he is infinity. Where is that guy? He never, he never did stuff like that. 
He just tells you, I'm the first and the last. That is a time reference with regard to the creation of time. He just told you he's the creator of it. Thank you for the hand. (coughs) I am he who lives and was dead and behold. Let me do that right. Behold. Now, something amazing is going to come next. It's amazing. I am alive forevermore. That makes no sense. Then he says, Amen. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. What does does this mean? What does as dead mean? Think about what John went through. He fell at his feet as dead. What does he mean? What was John afraid of? Don't be afraid. Afraid of what? What's the context? Fell at his feet as dead. Don't be afraid. Of me? Was John afraid of him? John's the beloved apostle. But he fell at his feet as dead. Christ says, don't be afraid. Afraid of what? What is this behold? What does it mean, the keys of Hades and death? What is the difference between Hades and death? The keys are obvious. It's a judging reference. He has the keys. He's a judge. It's a judicial referral. He's the judge of all things. And he's going to decide. And he's going to decide who will live as he defines life and who will die as he defines death. That is not extinguishment. You cannot be extinguished. Because he exists. But then he says this amazing thing. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. When I first read that as a young man, as that guy, I read that and I said, well, duh, of course you're alive forevermore. You're God. What's that? It's not such a big deal. What's the behold here? No behold. You, Christ, have made a mistake. Because I, I am at least 26, 27 years old and I have uh, hepatitis. And I know everything. Ask me back then. I was, I was a stinking genius. All you had to do was ask me. Why does he say, I am alive? What does he mean? Of course you're alive. What does he mean, though, when he says, I am alive? How does he define alive here? How are you defining it? I will propose that every one of you, just because I remember what it's like to be you, I will propose that every one of you are not defining alive correctly. You think alive means alive. And I'm telling you, it means a whole lot more than that. He's alive. Why is that amazing? How does he define dead? When he says, I was dead... But now I'm alive. How is he? What part of his death is he addressing here? His death is complex. There's many facets to it. I'll take guesses from the audience. Somebody's got this. I know you do. I can see you. What does alive mean to him? He is alive. Forevermore. 
What does that mean? This is God defining himself, describing himself as alive forevermore. And it somehow ties to your guarantee that you will be alive for forevermore. What's he saying? What's he mean? How much time is forevermore? Why does he say, I am the last? Next week. Those obvious, simple questions will be answered. Because I'm going to answer everything like I do every week. I never leave a question unanswered, ever. 